0: Let's pray for our service and then just for Pam's son as well. Lord God, we thank you so much for bringing us all together another day to gather, to continue to worship you and and to hear from you as we read your word. And we pray that you would just speak to us, Father God, each and every one of us where we are in our lives. You know what we need, Father, and I pray that you would minister to each and every heart that is in this room. And we pray for Pam and our son, Lord God, we pray that you would continue to nurse him back to health that you would give the doctors and the nurses and all those who are surrounding him and working near him and on him, that you would give them great wisdom and focus and concentration, Lord God. And that we might see just a great, continued great improvement, Lord God, and that we would hear that he's back home and doing well. And so give Pam and Nicole and Don and their family a comfort through this time. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Alright, so turn with me and your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11, and we're going to have a little bit of a history class this morning, so hopefully you guys, how many of you like enjoy history? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In high school, it was like, it's when you get out of high school, and then you realize, oh, history is kind of cool. It really just depends on the teacher that you have, I'm sure. I know I really enjoyed history. I actually didn't enjoy history until I became a believer, because I realized just the historical aspect of our faith, and so I started studying history in college and got a degree in it, and ever since then I've been hooked on history. And so you'll see this morning as we look a little bit on the history of Israel, like I said, it's going to be a bit of a history lesson, and it's a history of God's salvific plan for His people, Israel specifically, and the rest of us who aren't Israelites, who are known as Gentiles in Scripture. And so my hope this morning is that you not only hear and see the history that I talk about, but you would actually join God's people on this road in history that leads to the way of salvation. And that's the title of this morning's message, The Way of Salvation. So before we read, starting in verse 11, I want to give you a little bit of a history lesson because it it really helps with understanding what's going on with Isaiah and what he's talking about. So the setting is kind of, and you guys, if you've been here for a while, you know what's going on, but I think it's still helpful to remind ourselves what's going on. Because sometimes we forget that this was written to a particular people at a specific time about certain events that were happening. And so the years probably, Isaiah probably wrote this in 739, 730 B.C., so think of that, for that's 2,700 years ago, the writings that we're looking at were probably recorded. That's, the, that's what he's addressing. And so as we've been looking at Isaiah, what we're looking at particularly here is a prophecy to the nation Israel about their future. So it's 2,700 years ago, Isaiah's prophesying to them about something that's going to take place in their future. As you know, they've currently been breaking covenant with God. We've been learning about that over and over again. And they're about to suffer the Lord's discipline for their disobedience to God. The discipline is coming in the form of a foreign invasion by the Assyrians. And we've been looking at that over the last few chapters that we've been studying in Isaiah. The Assyrians are coming towards the southern Israel. And they're going to be meeting out giving out God's judgment on the nation of Israel, particularly Judah. And so they're, threat, they're, they're threatening Israel. So what's going to happen is eventually Israel is going to suffer a great invasion and deportation in Babylon. But that actually doesn't happen until about 597 BC. So close to 200 years after Isaiah's writing this warning to them, They don't suffer from Assyria, but they suffer another invasion from Babylon. The Babylonians will come in. You've probably heard of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the guy that comes and he takes them away into captivity for 70 years. And again, this is because Israel's repeatedly disregarded the warnings of God and repeatedly been disobedient towards him. And so God finally says enough. And so Isaiah's warning Israel about this over and over again. And so the prophecy that we're going to look at this morning is going to take place, the fulfillment of that prophecy is going to take place no sooner than 527 B.C. when Israel is released from captivity. So even though we're looking at this prophecy now, it can't happen for at least over 200 years. And as you learned last week, because what we're looking at this morning is a continuation of last week's prophecy it actually doesn't come to fruition until the time that Jesus comes. So just think, think of that as we're going through this. Here's Israel looking forward to a great future even after they've been judged and these generations have gone past. Isaiah is telling them and promising them of a better time. And so that time, as I said, is going to happen when Christ comes. As we saw last week, Jesus is going to inaugurate the fulfillment of this prophecy that we're looking at this morning at his first coming, or his first advent, advent, which is also known as. And then as we learned last week, that the full completion of this prophecy, ha- prophecy happens at the second coming of Jesus Christ, which we ourselves are still waiting for. So the prophecy takes a time to inaugurate and then to consummate. So are you guys follow me so far? Okay, hopefully you are. So, again... So this means the fulfillment of the prophecy didn't begin until Jesus came. And he's talking about it 700 years, 800 years before it actually happens. And we're living in the midst of the fulfillment of this prophecy and waiting for the consummation of it. Everybody good so far? There will be a test on this. Those dates are important. No, I'm just kidding. The dates aren't important. The dates just kind of give you a context of, of where we're at and where it's going and how long it takes for all this to happen. Because we read these and we think, oh, it hasn't yet happened. And some of it hasn't, and we'll talk about, because it hasn't taken, you know, what we hear, I'm getting into my sermon now, but what we hear we haven't seen happen yet. But I'm going to propose that some of it has. And like I did last week, we'll see the final consummation at the end when Christ comes back. So, with that long introduction... Let's go to verse 11. Again, hopefully keeping all that I said in mind, verse 11 of Isaiah says this, Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, and Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. And Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab, and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. And he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind. And he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria, for the remnant of his people will be left just as they were, excuse me, just as there was for Israel in that day that they come up from the land of Egypt. So this is Isaiah's prophetic and poetic, which is going to be important to note, word to Israel about their future. So let's go back to verse 11 and start to talk a little bit about this and find some application as we go along the way. So the first thing to note Isaiah says, then it will happen on that day. And remember from, hopefully you remember from last week, or even the last verse of last week, verse 10, this is a continuation of what he's already been talking about. On that day, again, is sometime in the future for the nation of Israel, is about something in the future is going to take place for them. And again, remember, put yourself in Israel's shoes. This is good news for them, because again, a is coming and Isaiah the prophet tells him, okay, don't worry about it, because there's going to become a future, a promised future, a way of salvation. And so when he says, in that day, it's a reference again to the time when God will intervene more than, more than most times not in human history. God's going to intervene. And we, again, learned about that last week. He's specifically talking about the time when Jesus comes. So in that day, so he's continuing on from the rest of the prophecy that we began to study. So in that day, what's going to happen? Look at the rest of verse 11. He says, Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand. So God is going to intervene in human history, as I said. And he's going to do it like he's done in the past. Isaiah's telling them, hey, this isn't unique. God has intervened once before. matter of fact, he's going to do it again in a big, big way. And we'll look at that as we move on. And it's not out of the ordinary, thankfully, for God to intervene in human affairs. But again, here, Isaiah is going to use poetically, he's going to continually refer to events that have happened in the past and compare them to what's going to happen into the future. If you followed along as I read, you will see a couple of things. He's going to refer to the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. So he builds on that because he's saying this is going to happen again. There's going to be another exodus of God's people. And he also alludes to the time under King David when there was great prosperity and there were the enemies of King David and how Israel is ultimately going to conquer them. And so this is going to happen again for the second time. God is going to intervene. And continue on in verse 11. He says, the Lord will recover the remnant of his people. Now the remnant is a people within the broader group of, god's people and and we've been studying that and hopefully you've been understanding it as we go through isaiah that within the nation of israel there's a certain group within israel that god saves god doesn't save all of israel he saves a remnant and he's repeating that here that there's a people within the people it's similar to people nowadays are saying well we're all god's children and that's not true God created all people, but only those who are adopted into God's family are His children. There's a remnant even within the world of people that we live in that are God's people. Again, we're not born into God's family. So our heritage, you know, if our own families are believers, each and every one of us has to make our own personal confession of faith. And the same was true with ancient Israel. Within the nation of Israel, only the remnant who participated in the covenant of God, were his actual people. So the Lord is going to do a great thing. He's going to intervene in human history for the nation of Israel, and he's going to draw his remnant out from them, from the world. And then go to verse 12. He gives us where he's going to pull all the nation of Israel from, and he does this in a poetic way. Look at the, That's why he brings up the nations. He says, from Assyria and from Egypt, who were great powers in the day, from Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. So this is a picture of God gathering the nation Israel, his people, from all over the world. Now remember in context right now, Israel has not been spread out all over the world. So Isaiah is letting them know, hey, God's discipline is coming. We're going to be spread out all over the world, and in the future, God's going to draw us back. And so that's what he's saying here, right? So Israel, the remnant, the true believers within Israel are going to be scattered abroad and he's going to bring them back. So when, when will this happen? Look at verse 11, excuse me, verse 12. He says, and he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah From the four corners of the earth. So basically, he's reiterating what he said in verse eleven. So when he raises up that standard or that banner, remember last week, that's Jesus Christ. So when Jesus Christ comes into the world, that's when the call of the people of Israel will be will be drawn back to God. That's when that will happen. That the, the banished ones of Israel. Because at the time that, that the Lord comes in His first advent, the nation of Israel has been scattered abroad. And if you think about it even today, true Israel, the remnant within Israel, is not all living in the, the country known as Israel. So we'll mention that, we'll get to that in a few moments. So, God's going to raise his standard, Jesus Christ, and start calling his people back home. And that's going to be the sign for them. They're going to start returning. They're going to start gathering to God. So, this passage now, I want to point this out because this is important to notice, is this is a poetic passage. And like I said, he reiterates verse 11 here in verse 12. So, the people that are dispersed are going to be called from all corners of the earth. God's going to call them back. And in the New Testament now, I want to show you some verses from the New Testament, how that's already began. Or it actually began at the time of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, we see the inauguration of the call of the nation of Israel to God, calling him back to God. You remember Jesus said himself in Matthew 15, 24, he is talking to a Gentile woman, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You know, this is Jesus' focal point of his ministry. At first was to come to the Jews, and then eventually it was spread out to the Gentiles. But there's the example that at the time of Jesus Christ, he was calling Israel back to God. Who were the first followers of Jesus Christ? They were Israelites. We tend to forget that. The early church comprised mostly, probably, of Jewish people. So God began to call the nation Israel back at that time. And then when he sent his disciples out in Matthew 10, 5 through 6, if you remember when he commissioned them to go out and gave them their marching orders, he also reiterates to them that he, they need to go and speak to the lost sheep of Israel. Turn with me to Matthew 10, look at verses 5 through 6. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. What were his instructions? Do not go to the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of Samaria, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the purpose was to begin the house of Israel, call the remnant back to God himself. And that continue on with the first century church. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 11 as well, and we look at what Paul was saying to the church at Rome, Let's start in verse 1, Romans 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Excuse me, Romans 11, I'm sorry. Romans 11, verses 1 through 5. So he says this, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Judah. And God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? So it's referring to an Old Testament prophet, how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? Or So what does God say to Elijah? Elijah thinks, I'm the only one in all of Israel that's following you, God. And what does God say to him? He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And in the same way, so he's, Paul is using this example to show the church that, hey, God's still calling his people. He's not forgotten Israel. And look at verse 5. He says, in the same way then, there has also come to be at this present time, meaning first century, remember we've got to remember the time frames here and what's going on. Back in the first century here at the early church, there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So I give you that verse just to show you that this prophecy that Isaiah spoke of that we're looking at this morning began to be fulfilled when Christ came and has carried on through the first century church and continues on to this day. And the gathering will continue until all people are called to God. till the final person is called. Go down to verses 25 and 27 of Romans 11. Look at what this verse says. He says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. And he's talking about the mystery of God's calling the nation of Israel and grafting the Gentile church into his people, which we'll talk about in a moment. For I do not want you to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When did sin start to be taken away? when Christ was crucified and raised from the dead. That's when the nation of Israel has been called back, and it has continued on until the last person is called. So, this prophecy is being fulfilled as we speak right now. Every time someone from the house of Israel, an Israelite, comes to the Lord, this is what he's talking about. So, this gathering, go back to our text now. In Isaiah. So this is happening now, and again, Isaiah is saying this poetically. This is uh, poetry in the form of prophecy, or prophecy in the form of poetry. So this is happening, and then what's going to happen once the people are called back, or as they're being called back, more likely, it says this Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim. What he's talking about here is that the hostility that existed between the the north and southern tribes of Israel will no longer exist because they've come to peace with God, and by extension, when you're at peace with God, you become at peace with other people, and he's saying this poetically. And I mention that because we can get a lot of misunderstandings and misinterpretations of Scripture when we look at some of these words and we look for literal words fulfillment, like word for word, it has to happen that way, but it's a poem. How many of us read poetry like we read a regular newspaper? We don't read it the same way. We know that it's not meant to be taken word for word, and scripture has all types of writings in it. We have history, we have poetry, um, we have songs, right? And some of us, when we listen to music, right, we don't take those words literally, it's usually a metaphor of some site or, or it's figurative language to convey a, a broader point. I like what one commentator said about metaphoric language, he said, or about poems in particular. He says, poems are meant to communicate complex images uh, and feelings to readers and metaphors, off, and they often state the comparisons most emotively. Right? They describe your feelings better when you do it with poems. I, I'm not, I don't like poetry. I don't know about you guys. I just want you to, like, when you read poetry, if you do, I'm like, what is he talking about? Why can't he just say what he means? But he's saying it in flowery language. And that's what's happening here with Isaiah. So know this. When you're reading poetry in scripture, it's not always meant to be taken word for word literally. If you do that, if you want to take these verses as literal, word-for-word meanings, then you have to take the rest of the section as well. And what do you get if you do that? Well, you get a... You get God literally waving a banner. Is God literally going to be waving a banner? Or does that mean something else? Or you get God waving His hand over a river. God doesn't literally do that, does He? So again, be careful when you're reading Scripture to understand how it's meant to portray what it's saying um and then you get over here in verse 15 the tongue of the sea of egypt does the sea of egypt have a tongue a literal tongue no it's it's trying to convey something so i think that's important for us to understand because people will say well this isn't happened yet or god didn't make it happen this way he must god's word can't be trusted well again it's poetic language it's supposed to be taken figuratively and so we have to be careful of that. And, and I believe the best way to understand and make sense of the text like this is what's called um, is is seeing this text in what's called an already and not yet perspective. Or what's called inaugurated eschatology. There's your big word for the day. Inaugurated eschatology. What does that mean? I don't know. I just saw it and I thought I'd write it down. <clears throat> oh, don't worry, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to try. <laughs> so eschatology is the study of last things, the things that happened at the end of you know, the latter days, which we have been in since the time Jesus had come. And inaugurated eschatology just means that something has begun to happen. And so when Christ came, I believe that we've been living in the last days since Christ has come. So it's, the last days are already, but not yet, meaning it hasn't been fully consummated. It's an already, not yet. So when you look at the Old Testament, when we're reading something like this, we have to first read it through the lens of the coming of Jesus Christ, and then that adds to our understanding of Scripture. If you think of this already, not yet concept, if you're like, "Ah, I don't know if you're on the right track there, Robert, um, which is fine. You can be wrong. Um, Well, let let me share something with you. Scripture talks about this over and over again. Think about this. We are told in Scripture that we are already raised with Christ, right? It it does say that. We're already raised with Christ, but we are raised with Christ, but not fully yet. We haven't experienced the full resurrection that happens at the second coming. We're already told that we're glorified in Christ, but there's a coming greater glorification at the second coming. We are already redeemed in Christ, but our final redemption has yet to happen. We already have said now to have eternal life. We have eternal life now, but it comes in more fuller and consummated sense at the second coming. Has not scripture told us that Jesus already defeated sin, Satan, and death? If Jesus has defeated those things, then how come those things are still around? How come we still sin? We all still sin. How come we die? How come... Satan seems like sometimes he's getting the better of God. So, but Scripture tells us that God has already defeated those things, and at the final consummation, sin and death and Satan are ultimately defeated, never to rise again. So those are just a few examples of why people believe in inaugurated eschatology, an already-but-not-yet perspective on Scripture. So you can read, again, with that understanding, the Old Testament saying, okay, some of this has happened in one sense, but the full consummation, the full weight, has yet to happen. So, let's go back to Isaiah now and see what he's talking about in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 11. So, the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. So again, this is symbolic of or a poetic way of saying there's going to be peace. When you come to Christ, there's peace, in a sense. And not only that, look at verse 14. It says, And they will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. Together they will plunder the sons of the east, and they will possess Edom and Moab, and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. These are Israel's ancient enemies. And these are lands that exist outside the promised land. So what Isaiah is telling them, he's reminding them of their great days under King David, which was actually 200 years before uh, what was talked about here, when the kingdom was at peace, and it was at one, and it was victorious. He's telling them again that there's going to come a time in the future that that's going to happen again, that you're going to be at peace, you're going to have victory over your your enemies, and and the kingdom of God is going to expand. Again, he's saying this. Uh, prophetically and and poetically to the people. They would understand what he's talking about in the sense that there's going to be a great time for the nation of Israel like it used to be. One kingdom in peace and expanding territory and defeating the enemies. Okay? So... When Israel comes to Christ, which is happening now, doesn't that happen? They're at peace with God. They defeat their enemies in the sense of our enemy of Satan and sin. They expand the kingdom of God through the proclamation of God's word. Every time somebody comes to Christ, the kingdom of God is expanded, in a sense. That's just another example of that already, not yet. Do we not already live in the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is within, right? Jesus said that he was the kingdom He brought the kingdom of God here. So we experience the kingdom of God in one sense, but then in the future, it's going to be in a much greater sense. The kingdom of God is going to exist. So this is what Isaiah is telling them. And then finally, in verses 15 through 16, let's look at that. Lastly, the Lord is going to depict uh, his intervention to destroy Israel's enemies and pave the way for the gathering of his remnant once again. Look at verses 15 through 16. So, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and he will wave his hand over the river of his scorching wind, and he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And they will, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. So he's reminding of Israel, remember when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, what I did? I struck the waters, opened it up so that they could walk upon dry land. He's saying he's going to do something like that again. That's why he says he utterly destroys the tongue of the Sea of Egypt, right? So that men could walk across, and they're going to come back from Assyria on a highway. Who's coming back? The remnant of his people, just like they did back in Egypt, so the gathering is being compared to this great exodus of old. And that's why in the beginning he said that he's going to do it again for the second time. God is going to stop the river so this his people will cross over dry land. And he's saying this, not literally, is he going to do that? He did it in the past, but in the future it's going to be different. Just like he did for Israel. He's going to make a highway, would be a better understanding, or a smooth path, for his people to return to uh, to God. That's why he says, over the mountain of Assyria, I'm going to make a path. If you've ever hiked in a path, sometimes it can be kind of tough. You have to climb over things, and some it's just too scary, you don't go that way. He's making an illustration that he's going to make this path easy to come back to the Lord. It won't be hard to come to the Lord anymore. It's going to be easy. It's not going to be rough. It's not going to be... Uh, treacherous instead God is going to make it simple for his people to come to him and just think of that has not God made it simple to come to him in our lives as well and for the nation of Israel Christ has died resurrected from the dead and is offering eternal life and all you have to do is what starts with a B believe. believe thank you that's how easy it is and it's easy enough for a child to understand. They just have to believe in what God has done for me, and I can come to him. And that's what he's saying here, is that he's made this available for the nation of Israel as well, and a remnant will understand and come back. So just like he delivered Israel from the slavery of Egypt, he's going to deliver Israel from the slavery of the world in a much broader sense. And so that's what the text is telling us. So I hope you see the relevance for each and every one of us today, at least this morning as we're studying this. You might be thinking, well, that's great for Israel, but what about us Gentiles? Well, what does Scripture say about that? Well, Scripture has to say a lot about that, because God's redemptive plan does include Gentiles, those of us who are not from Israel or have Israel, Israelite blood. Right? God's redemptive plan has always included Gentiles. Well, how does God accomplish this? Well, God in the past was redeeming the world by giving the nation of Israel the great task of spreading His covenants and sharing the message of God to the nations. Right? They, were to be, they were called the light to the Gentiles. That's who Israel was supposed to be. And they fell off track along the way. And now, through Jesus Christ, that ministry continues. Scripture tells us that we have now been engrafted Gentiles into uh, Israel. Let me show you, share a few examples of this. Turn with me. Let's go back to Romans. We're going to just look at two, two verses, or two texts, as we wrap this up. In Romans chapter 11... Look specifically at verse 17. We were reading around this verse earlier. So in Paul describing God's redemptive redemptive plan, he says this, But if some of the branches were broken off, and that's talking about the nation of Israel, and you, meaning the Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So he's, he's given the picture of, of, you know, you're getting grafted back into this tree, and you're going to grow with this tree. So the people of God are now the remnant of Israel and the Gentiles, the Gentile-believing church. And both of them have become one. This is um, probably elaborated, elaborated more specifically in Ephesians chapter 2, turn there with me. I love this, this, this text right here. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. He's speaking to Gentiles here about this great mystery of how God saves the Gentiles. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's describing Gentiles right here, right? No hope. You weren't part of the nation of Israel, and so you were strangers to the covenants that Israel had, and you had no hope, and you were without God. He says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you get to participate, Gentiles, because of what Christ has done and nothing else. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, meaning Gentiles and uh, Israel, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, so that when you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building were fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of the Spirit, in, excuse me, of God in the Spirit. So all that is just describing what Israel was by themselves, now have the nation, our Gentiles have now been taken hold in Christ and become part of that too. We too are like Israel. We don't replace Israel, but we're grafted with Israel, and we are partakers of all the promises that they had. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. And it's not based on anything other than what Christ has done. He kept, he kept saying, in Christ, in Christ, to prove his point. So that's the relevance for us, is we, the church, and the remnant of Israel are now one, at peace. We, can be, we are considered the remnant as well. And so what is our duty now? Well, we are to proclaim the gospel to the world around us, until Christ returns. That was what Israel's mission was. That is what the church's mission is now. So just two points of application in closing. Number one, God is continuing to gather people for himself. Right? The Apostle Paul said this was happening now in the first century, and it's going to happen until Christ comes back. Because once Christ, once Christ returns, there's the, the call of the gospel, the call of God no longer exists. It, ha- it is happening now right now and so if you are not a child of god if you have not given your life to christ well that calling is for you and god is making the path easy for you to come to him just like he did for the nation of israel and just like he does for each and every one of us god is continually gathering people to himself and the question is will you respond do you see that you need christ do you see that you are far off and alienated from him If you do, I pray that you would come to him today, that you would call out to him and ask for for his forgiveness. And you would repent of your sin and give your life to him and submit to him and be included in the remnant. Again, you cannot be part of the remnant by your birth. Doesn't matter who you were born to, doesn't matter where you live. It is all because of what Christ has done. Each and every one of us has to make our own personal decision for Christ on our own. We cannot hold on to somebody's coattails and and go for the ride with them. Each and every one of us one day will stand before God and we will be all by ourselves. You won't be with your friends. You won't be with your children. You won't be with your spouse or your mom or dad. It will just be you and God. And you will be held accountable for your belief or non-belief in him. But before you get to that point, God is now making his call. He's making his appeal through the gospel, through the proclamation of his word, for you to repent and to submit to him. And I pray that you would do that this morning. For those of us who have submitted to Christ, what can we learn from this? Well, God has given the church the great responsibility to proclaim his love to the world around us. The nation of Israel was to be the light to the Gentiles. Christ came. And fully embodied that. He was called the light to the Gentiles. And now he's given the mission to the church to be a light to the world, right? He said, you are a light. Let your light, you remember, let your light shine for all to see. That's what we're called to do. And the question is for us is will we respond to that great calling and that great responsibility that each and every one of us has And that plays out in different areas. It doesn't mean you have to come and teach on Sunday or in a Bible study or from the street corner. No, God will use you wherever you are at to be a witness to those people around you. But you have that great responsibility. And I pray that you will respond and step up and ask God, where do you want me to use? Where do you want to use me? And that you would submit to that calling. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. And even though we look at a text that was written to people 2,700 years ago, that it still has so much relevance. And the prophecy is even taking place today as we speak. Every time somebody from the nation of Israel, Jewish ancestry, comes to you, we see you gathering the remnant to yourself. And we pray for those people, your chosen people Israel, Lord God, that they would come back to you. They would see that you are the Messiah who was promised through the prophets. And we thank you, Lord, as well, for including us, Gentiles, that we might receive these great promises as well. And I pray this morning, Lord God, if there's anybody in this room who has not yet given their life to you, repented of their sins, asking you to forgive them, and decide to follow you i pray that you would cause them to do that this morning in their hearts and in their minds Lord that they would confess with their mouth and be- and believe in their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord that he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead and they would make that confession of faith and believe in you and experience true peace an end to hostility that they might be glorified redeemed sanctified and begin to experience eternal life and for those of us Lord God who of you graciously have given eternal life to I pray Lord God that you would work in our lives and show us who we need to be sharing your love with that you would help us to walk faithfully that even when we don't speak that our witness our actions would be a witness and a testimony of your love for us And people would see something different. Not for our glory, but for your glory. Because you've saved us and you've transformed us. And you've paved the way of salvation and promised us peace. Now and when you return. And until you return, Lord God, may we faithfully follow you. Help us to do that with all of our hearts. With all of our mind. And with all of our strength. And we pray this. In the name of our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, amen.